Chapter number 13 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Dean of Toronto, A Comedy of Whitehall, by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 13 The Disappearance of John Dean. No more Saturday afternoons for you and John Dean, little mother cried Dorothy with forced gaiety as she rose from the breakfast table. Mrs. West looked up quickly. Why? she asked, a falter in her voice. He's going away, announced Dorothy indifferently as she pinned on her hat. To Canada? asked Mrs. West anxiously. No, replied Dorothy in a toneless voice. He's going away on business. Oh! Mrs. West's relief was too obvious for dissimulation. He won't be back for months, continued Dorothy relentlessly and I shall spend my time in counting my fingers and flirting with Sir Bridgman. Goodbye! And brushing a kiss on her mother's cheek, she was gone, leaving Mrs. West puzzled, more by her manner, than the announcement she had made. Arrived at the office, Dorothy cleared up what remained of the previous night's work, ordered luncheon, tidied things generally, then sat down to wait. From time to time she glanced at the watch upon her wrist, at first mechanically, then curiously, finally anxiously. For the last few days she had been more concerned than she was prepared to admit by John Dean's strangeness of manner. She was hurt that he should now treat her as if she were a stranger, whereas hitherto he had been so confidential and friendly. Womanlike, she ascribed it to illness. He had been overworking. He was a man of such impulsive energy, so full of ideas, so impatient of delays. He seemed always to want to do everything at the moment he thought of it. Incidentally, he expected others to be imbued with his own vitality. He had worn himself out, she decided. Or was it that he was being drugged? Time after time the idea had suggested itself to her, only to be dismissed as melodramatic. Sometimes there would cross her mind a suspicion so strange, so fantastic, that she would brush it aside as utterly ridiculous. Luncheon arrived, and no John Dean. Dorothy made an indifferent meal. One o'clock passed. Two o'clock came. She had visions of him lying in his room at the hotel, too ill to summon assistance. She determined upon action, and rang up the Ritzton. To her inquiry as to whether or no Mr. John Dean were in, came the reply that he was not. Would they find out at what time he left the hotel? It was his secretary speaking. Yes, they would, if Dorothy would hold on. At the end of what seemed an age came the reply. Mr. John Dean had left the hotel on the previous morning, and had not since returned. With a clatter, the receiver fell from Dorothy's hand. It was something worse than illness, then, that had kept John Dean from his office. This she saw clearly. Probably he was lying dead in some out-of-the-way spot, a victim of the hidden hand. She felt physically sick at the thought. He was such a splendid man, she told herself, ready to give everything for nothing, the sort of man that made for victory. Suddenly she remembered the episode of the taxi on the previous evening, and became galvanized to action. What a fool she had been! Seizing the receiver of the private line to the Admiralty, she demanded to be put through to Mr. Blair. Presently she heard his mellow, patient voice. No, he had heard nothing of John Dean, nor had he seen him for several days. There was a note of plaintive gratitude in Mr. Blair's voice, but Dorothy was too worried to notice it. Putting up the receiver, she snatched up her hat, jabbed the pin through it, one of them into her head, and almost throwing herself into her coat, dashed down the stairs and literally ran across Waterloo Place, down the Duke of York steps into the Admiralty. She passed swiftly in, and up to Mr. Blair's room, 
into which she burst with a lack of ceremony that convinced him she had already imbibed the qualities that made John Dean the terror of his existence. "'I want to see Sir Lyster at once,' she panted. Mr. Blair looked at her in surprise. "'He's engaged just now, Miss West,' he said mildly. "'Is there anything I can do?' "'It doesn't matter whether he's engaged. You must go into him at once, Mr. Blair, and tell him I must see him.' Mr. Blair still continued to gaze at her with bovine wonder. "'Oh, you stupid creature!' Dorothy stamped her foot in her impatience. Then, with a sudden movement, she made for Sir Lyster's door, knocked and entered, leaving Mr. Blair gazing before him, marveling that so short an association with John Dean should have produced such startling results. However, it was for Sir Lyster to slumber now, and he resumed his work. Sir Lyster, Sir Bridgman North, and Admiral Hayworth were bending over a table on which a large plan lay spread out. Sir Lyster was the first to look up. At the sight of the flushed and excited girl, his gaze became fixed. Sir Bridgman and Admiral Hayworth followed the direction of his eyes to where Dorothy stood with heaving breast and fear in her eyes. "'Mr. Dean has disappeared,' she gasped, without any preliminary apology. "'The devil!' exclaimed Sir Bridgman. Admiral Hayworth jumped to his feet. Sir Bridgman rose and placed a chair for Dorothy into which she sank. Then she told her story, concluding with, "'It's all my fault for not doing something about the taxi.' The three men listened without interruption. When she had concluded, they looked anxiously from one to the other. It was Sir Bridgman who broke the silence. We had better get Walton here. Sir Lyster nodded, and going to the door requested Mr. Blair to ask Colonel Walton to come round at once on a matter of importance. Then it was that Sir Bridgman seemed to notice Dorothy's excited state. With that courtesy that made him a great favorite with women, he poured out a glass of water from a carafe on a side table and handed it to her. With her eyes she thanked him. Sir Bridgman decided that she was an extremely pretty girl. The water seemed to coordinate Dorothy's ideas. For the first time, she appreciated that she had unceremoniously burst in the private room of the First Lord of the Admiralty. I'm, uh, I'm very sorry, she faltered, but it seemed so important, and Mr. Blair wouldn't let me come in. Sir Lyster nodded his approval of her action. You did quite right, Miss. West, said Dorothy. Miss West, continued Sir Lyster. There are occasions when... He hesitated for a word. John Dean's methods are best, suggested Sir Bridgman. Sir Lyster smiled, but there was no answering smile in Dorothy's eyes. "'What do you think has happened?' she asked, looking from one to the other. "'It's impossible to say,' began Sir Lyster. "'It's... it's... spies,' she said with a catch in her voice. "'I'm sure of it. They've drugged him. they tried to poison our food.' "'Poison your food?' repeated Sir Lyster uncomprehendingly. "'Yes,' said Dorothy, and she proceeded to tell how it came about that the luncheon and dinners were supplied from an anonymous source. "'That's Walton.' said Admiral Hayworth, and the other nodded. For a few moments they sat in silence, all waiting for the arrival of Colonel Walton. When the telephone bell rang, Sir Lyster started perceptibly. Taking up the receiver from the instrument, he listened for a few seconds. Show him in, he said. Then, turning to the others, he explained. Walton is out, but Sage is here. Good, said Sir Bridgman. Sometimes Jack is better than his master. Sir Lyster looked at him meaningly, then at Dorothy. With perfect self-possession, Malcolm Sage entered gave a short, jerky bow, and without invitation drew a chair up opposite to where Dorothy was sitting. For a moment he gazed at her and saw anxiety in her eyes. "'Don't be alarmed,' he said quietly. "'The situation is well in hand.' There was a ghost of a smile about the corners of his mouth. "'Is he safe?' inquired Dorothy, leaning forward, whilst the three men looked at Sage, as if not quite sure of his sanity. "'I can only repeat what I have said,' replied Sage. "'The situation is well in hand.' "'But how the devil?' began Sir Bridgman. I should like to ask Miss West a few questions, said Sage. 
Sir Bridgman subsided. Why did you come here? he asked, turning to Dorothy. Mr. Dean didn't come in this morning. I waited till past two, then I rang up the Ritzton. She paused. Go on, said Sage. They told me he had not been back since yesterday morning. And then, inquired Sage, I rang up Mr. Blair. He had heard nothing, so I thought I had better come around and, and, and I'm afraid I burst in here very rudely. Mr. Blair, you did quite right, Miss West, said Sir Lyster. Why didn't you act before? Dorothy felt Sage's eyes were burning through her brain, so intent was his gaze. I had forgotten about the taxi. I, I, I thought he might be unwell, said Dorothy. Why? Well, she began, and then paused. Go on, said Sage, encouragingly. He has seemed rather strange for some days, she said. His memory was very bad. As a rule, he has a wonderful memory and never makes a note. How was his memory bad? He seemed to forget what he had written, and was always having letters turned up. Sage nodded. Go on, he said. Then, she continued, he seemed to want always to put things off. He was undecided, so unlike his normal self. Most of the things he asked me to attend to. And that made you think he was ill, suggested Sage. Yes, she said, that, and other things. What other things? Dorothy screwed up her eyebrows, her head on one side, as if striving to find words to express what was in her mind. His manner was strange, she began. It is very difficult to give instances, but previously he had always been so pleasant and, and, unconscious of himself, shall we say, suggested Sage. That's it, she said brightly. He was just Mr. Dean. Afterwards he seemed to be always watching me, as if not quite sure who I was. It was almost uncanny. I thought, perhaps, she hesitated. What? That he was being drugged she concluded reluctantly. When did you first notice this? Let me see, said Dorothy. This is Tuesday. It was on Thursday morning when I first noticed it. What struck me then was that he said good morning when he came in. And what did he usually say, inquired Sage? He used to say morning, or what really sounded more like morn, she said with a smile. Thank you, said Sage. Unless these gentlemen have any further questions to put to you, there is nothing more to be done at present. But is he? She began, then she paused. I should not be unnecessarily alarmed, Miss West, if I were you, said Sage. Above all, keep your own counsel. Mr. Dean disapproves of people who talk. I know, said Dorothy, rising and drawing herself up with dignity. I regard your prompt action as highly commendable, Miss West, said Sir Lyster. You will, of course, continue in attendance at the office until you hear further. If anything unusual transpires, please get into touch with me immediately, even to the extent of... He paused a moment. Bursting in as you did just now, said Sir Bridgman with a laugh. It's the real John Dean manner. Exactly, said Sir Lyster. Sir Lyster conducted Dorothy into Mr. Blair's room. Mr. Blair, he said, if Miss West ever wishes to see me urgently, please tell me, no matter with whom I am engaged. If I do not happen to be in, Sir Bridgman will see her, or feeling that... Get through to Colonel Walton, or to Mr. Sage. Sir Lyster bowed to Dorothy and returned to his room. Mr. Blair blinked his eyes in bewilderment. The influence of John Dean upon the British Admiralty was most extraordinary. I don't understand the drift of all your questions, Mr. Sage, said Sir Lyster, resuming his seat. Malcolm Sage turned his eyes upon the First Lord. I will explain that later, sir, he said, but for the present I must ask your indulgence. But, began Sir Lyster, I might advance a hundred theories, 
but until I am sure, it would be better for me to keep silence. I must confer with my chief. Sir Bridgman nodded approval. Quite so, said Sir Lyster. In the meantime, what is to be done? Raise the hue and cry, said Sage quietly. Good God, man, exclaimed Sir Bridgman. That would give the whole game away. I propose, said Sage quietly, that photographs of John Dean be inserted in every paper in the kingdom, that every continental paper likewise has full particulars of his disappearance, that you offer a thousand pounds reward for news that will lead to his discovery, and go on increasing it by a thousand every day until it reaches ten thousand. Malcolm Sage paused. His three listeners stared at him as if he were out of his senses. "'You seriously suggest this publicity?' inquired Sir Lyster in cold and even tones. "'I do,' said Sage. "'You know why Mr. Dean is here?' "'I do.' "'And yet you still advise this course?' asked Sir Lyster. "'I do,' responded Sage. "'Well, I'm damned,' said Sir Bridgman. For a moment a flicker of a smile crossed Malcolm Sage's serious features. "'What are your reasons?' demanded Sir Lyster. "'My reasons are closely connected with my conclusion, sir, "'and at the present time they are too nebulous to express.' "'We will consider this,' said Sir Lyster with an air of concluding the interview. "'Malcolm Sage rose. "'The time is not one for consideration, sir,' he said, "'but for action. "'If you hesitate in this publicity, "'I must ask your permission to see the Prime Minister.' "'Then, with a sudden change in tone, "'and speaking with an air of great seriousness, he added, "'This is a matter of vital importance.' The announcement should be made in the late editions of all the evening papers, and the full story must appear in tomorrow's papers. There is not much time. Have I your permission to proceed? No, sir, you have not, thundered Sir Lyster. I shall report this matter to Colonel Walton. That, sir, you are quite at liberty to do, said Sage calmly. Incidentally, you might report that I have resigned from my position at Department C. I wish you good afternoon, gentlemen. And with that, Malcolm Sage left the room. Good Lord! Grain, you've done it now, said Sir Bridgman. L.J. thinks the world of that chap. He's a most impertinent fellow, said Sir Lyster with heat. Clever men frequently are, laughed Sir Bridgman. It seems to me that everybody's getting under the influence of John Dean. I suppose it's Bolshevism, he muttered to himself. Half an hour later, Colonel Walton was seated in earnest conversation with Mr. Llewellyn John. It's very awkward, very awkward, said Mr. Llewellyn John. Still, you must act along your own lines. It's no good creating a department, and then allowing another department to dictate to it. But it's very awkward, he added. It would be more awkward, sir, if Sage were allowed to go, said Colonel Walton. Of course, of course, said Mr. Llewellyn John. That's unthinkable. If I were only told, he muttered, if I were only told, they keep so much from me. Then after a pause, he added, I'm inclined to blame you, though, Walton, for not, not... Mr. Llewellyn John hesitated. Keeping John Dean under proper observation, suggested Colonel Walton quietly. Exactly. Mr. Llewellyn John looked at him quickly. He was always guarded. Then you, began Mr. Llewellyn John. Our men were tricked. Tricked? Mr. Llewellyn John looked startled. Yes, continued Colonel Walton. McLean was on duty that night. Immediately he saw John Dean hail a taxi, he jumped into his own taxi, but he had hardly started when he was run into by a small runabout, and the other taxi got away. But the number of... Fictitious poles, the taxi and the runabout. We thought it expedient not to detain the man who ran into McLean, Colonel Walton added. For nearly a minute, Mr. Llewellyn John sat staring at the chief of Department Z. It's most unfortunate, disastrous, in fact, he said at length. We must try and get into touch with Alcudic by wireless. 
"'I'm afraid it will be useless,' was the response. "'There's the war cabinet to be considered,' murmured Mr. Llewellyn John to himself. "'The war does not—' he hesitated. "'Make men tractable?' suggested Colonel Walton helpfully. "'Exactly,' agreed Mr. Llewellyn John. "'They may not take the same view as Sir Lyster and myself "'with regard to that memorandum of ours to Dean.' "'It's very awkward happening just now,' he added, "'with all this trouble about interning aliens.' "'What am I to do, sir? There is very little time.' "'Do?' said Mr. Llewellyn John. "'Why, run your department in your own way, Walton.' "'I have an absolutely free hand?' inquired Colonel Walton. "'Absolutely,' said Mr. Llewellyn John. "'But I wish you could tell me more. "'To be quite frank, I'm as much in the dark as you are. "'Sage is as obstinate as a pack-mule, and as sure-footed. "'He's no respecter of—' "'Prime ministers or first lords?' suggested Mr. Llewellyn John with a smile. "'Exactly.' "'Well, go your own way,' said Mr. Llewellyn John. "'But I should like to know what it all means. "'Frankly, I'm puzzled. "'We are cut off entirely from Mucklinick, "'and without John Dean, the destroyer can't sail. "'We're losing valuable time. "'It's very unfortunate. "'It's a disaster, in fact. "'But,' he burst out excitedly, "'why on earth does Sage want to advertise our anxiety "'as to Dean's whereabouts? "'That's what puzzles me.' "'It puzzles me, too, sir,' said Colonel Walden quietly. "'It's such a confession of weakness.' continued Mr. Llewellyn John, such a showing of our hand. What will people think when we offer ten thousand pounds for news of John Dean of Toronto? They'll probably think that he's an extremely valuable man, was the dry retort. That's it exactly, said Mr. Llewellyn John, and Berlin will congratulate itself upon a master stroke. Colonel Walton felt inclined to suggest that was exactly what Malcolm Sage seemed most to desire, but he refrained. Very well, Walton, carry on, said Mr. Llewellyn John. But frankly, I don't like it, he added half to himself. Colonel Walton left number 110, Downing Street, and ten minutes later Malcolm Sage withdrew his resignation. Whilst Department Z hummed and buzzed with energy, and men and women were coming and going continuously, Dorothy sat at the window of John Dean's room, gazing out at a prospect of white enameled bricks punctuated by windows. She had nothing to do. Everything seemed so different. John Dean's impulsive energy had vitalized all about him. Now she felt as though all her faculties had suddenly wilted. In her own mind she was convinced that he was ill. She could not blot from her mind the strangeness of his manner during the last few days. His sudden loss of memory proved that he was unwell. For a man to forget where the potion stamps were kept, or the position in the rooms of the letter files, was, in itself, a proof that something very strange had suddenly come over him. The more so in the case of one who was almost aggressively proud of his memory. Then there had been other little details— his movements did not seem the same. That jerkiness and sudden upward glance from his table had disappeared. It was as if he had been drugged. Dorothy wondered if that really were the explanation. Oh, but she was very miserable and horribly lonely. That night Dorothy and her mother sat up long after midnight talking of John Dean. To both had come the realization that he stood to them in the light of an intimate friend. As she said good night, Mrs. West put her arm around Dorothy's shoulders, and in a shaky voice said, I don't think God would let anything happen to a good man like Mr. Dean. And Dorothy turned and left the room abruptly. End of chapter 13 Recording by Todd